radioactive nuclear waste. It's the so-called gift that keeps on giving, whether we want it to or not, and we don't, because it's the most deadly stuff on Earth, and it lasts virtually forever. The nuclear industry tries to convince us that, hey, it's no big deal. They'll handle it. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. But then you hear a genuine expert, like Dr. Gordon Edwards, tell you. We were lied to about the nuclear waste in the first place. Now that we know the nuclear waste is there, now that we know that it is such a tricky problem and that we don't really have a handle on how to store things safely for a million years, shouldn't we just stop producing it? The industry tries to go through the motions to convince people that, yes, we do have a solution. It's only a question of finding out where to put it, but we know exactly what to do. All we have to do is bury it. I think people have got to realize that that is not really sufficient answer, that we should stop producing this waste. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. But there are a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot of power who do not agree. And that is why, when we hear someone like Dr. Gordon Edwards, we unfortunately realize that we are in that dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we go in-depth on the recent vote of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation that ended the proposed radioactive waste dump virtually on the shores of Lake Huron. We talk with Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility to understand what was being proposed, the context, the importance of that vote, how a First Nations people came to be the ones who actually sank this proposal, and what comes next. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we have yet heard in all of the Democratic debates combined. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 25th, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the U.S., our military in the presence of Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, has reportedly conducted a mini-exercise, one of those cute little exercises, in which Washington launched a simulated nuclear strike against Russia. The scenario included a contingency where Russia decides to use a low-yield, limited nuclear weapon against a site on NATO territory, and the U.S. responds with what the senior official called a limited response to Moscow's nuclear attack on Europe. Realize that when they talk about limited, 
tactical nuclear weapons. They're talking about little minis in the five kiloton range, just one third of the size that was dropped on Hiroshima. But if you go to the site NukeWatch and put in the information, you discover that a five kiloton nuclear weapon dropped on mm, Washington, D.C. would result in 60,000 deaths and 136,000 injuries. Yeah, that's real mini. That's real, quote-unquote, usable. No one talks about the forever nature of the radioactive legacy from a bomb like that. And now the U.S. has deployed its first-ever so-called low-yield Trident nuclear warhead, again, one of those five kiloton babies, on a submarine that is currently patrolling the Atlantic Ocean. Arms control advocates warn it is a dangerous step towards making a nuclear launch more likely and accelerates a drift towards thinking of nuclear weapons as a means to fight and win wars rather than as a deterrent of last resort. Could we revisit that doomsday clock and maybe nudge it ahead a little bit? Things are heating up and not in a good way. In New York, a broad coalition of groups has intervened against the Holtec takeover of Indian Point for purposes of decommissioning. It includes the state of New York, towns of Coraline, village of Buchanan, Hendrick Hudson School District, Riverkeeper, and Safe Energy Rights Group. These interveners met with the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission on February 12 to list the encyclopedic list of complaints against Holtec from their past actions, lies, and legal tie-ups surrounding nuclear waste. Mana Joe Green, Environmental Director for Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, is requesting that people around the country, first of all, contact the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and request a public hearing regarding the Indian Point license transfer application that would actually give the rights to do this decommissioning to Holtec. The second is to file comments by March 25 to the NRC on problems with Holtec at San Onofre here in California, Pilgrim in Massachusetts, Palisades and Big Rock Point in Michigan, and Oyster Creek in New Jersey. We'll have some links up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 453. In Washington State, companies responsible for cleaning up a decommissioned plutonium plant at the Hanford site in southeastern Washington state, failed to conduct comprehensive safety checks at facilities containing nuclear waste, even after a 2017 tunnel collapse put surrounding communities on lockdown. The Government Accountability Office found that the Energy Department waived a root cause analysis of the tunnel collapse because it was asked to do so by the contractor handling the inspections. The Fox Manipulating Analysis of the Hen House Security. DOE did conduct a separate review to determine weaknesses and risks related to contaminated facilities, but that evaluation was based largely on old data and did not include any physical or non-physical inspection of the facilities that are flagged for cleanup. It turns out that parts of the Hanford site have not been entered nor inspected in more than 55 zero years, suggesting there could be additional safety risks. Ya think? In Pennsylvania, 
the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has denied a request for a hearing on a proposal to scale back some emergency response-related measures at Three Mile Island near Harrisburg. The request for the hearing came from Three Mile Island Alert, a watchdog organization which opposes plans by the TMI owner to reduce its role in emergency planning as of early next year. TMI owner Exelon is asking the NRC for an exemption that would, among other things, remove the 10-mile evacuation zone surrounding Three Mile Island and end off-site radiation monitoring and regular testing of sirens, which would be used to warn the public in case of an accident. TMI Alert argues that a significant risk of accident will still exist because of the radioactive waste that is stored on site. But the NRC, in its quote-unquote wisdom, concluded that TMI alert, quote, lacks the legal standing to compel the hearing. Well, that's just semantics and stupid nuke tricks. In Tennessee, the Tennessee Valley Authority has shut down one of the reactors at its newest nuclear power plant, Watts Bar, after a gauge indicated a lower-than-expected level in one of its four steam generators. I believe that's water level that would keep things cool. And then workers detected smoke in a battery room in the control room. Over to Japan, where, to bring you up to date on the Olympics... Well, the big story about the proposed 2020 Radioactive Tokyo Olympics is not the radioactivity part, but the coronavirus part. There is now rampant international supposition that the Olympics will not be able to take place in Tokyo because of this virus. Already, sporting events around the world have either been canceled or moved to new venues, including Olympic trials in basketball, boxing, biathlon, and women's handball. According to John Coates, who is head of an International Olympics Committee inspection team, there's no case for any contingency plans or canceling of the games or moving the games. So in other words, the contingency plan is denial. And if Japan had been looking at the radiological difficulties of holding the Olympics in Japan, in Tokyo, and a torch run through Fukushima at this time, they would have lots of Plan Bs in place. Two major candidates in this May's London mayoral election have already suggested that the city is ready to host the 2020 Summer Olympics if Tokyo is forced to give up hosting the Games due to a possible pandemic of the new coronavirus. But all this washes over what should be our primary focus regarding Fukushima and Tokyo and the Olympics. And that is, and as if that wasn't enough. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. When it comes to the Olympics, Japan just doesn't get it. Fukushima Governor Masao Uchibara said that the Northeast Japan Prefecture, Fukushima Prefecture, that was devastated by the 2011 earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster is perfectly safe to host its leg of the Olympics torch relay. Really? 
Only a little over two months ago, Greenpeace Japan informed the Japanese government and Olympic bodies that radiation hotspots were discovered around J Village, where the torch relay race is scheduled to begin. It is also slated to run through Futaba, which is the town next to Fukushima Daiichi. Like, the guys would get off for lunch and they'd go into town to get their sushi there. Radiation allowed in Futaba is four times higher than that which is allowed in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. And now coronavirus on top of all of that? We'll talk about that aspect in today's final thought. You know... Fukushima Governor Masao Uchibori and all of those you represent who think the same way, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. In other stories from Japan, a Japanese government panel on Friday, January 31st, roughly accepted a draft proposal for releasing into the sea, meaning the Pacific Ocean, massive amounts of radioactive water now being stored at Fukushima nuclear power plant. They've said that this was the best option without defining the parameters for what best is based upon because it probably fits into what's cheapest, fastest, and easiest for Tokyo Electric Power Company and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. This is all based, according to them, on expert recommendations without any reference to who those experts are or who pays their salaries. Meanwhile, in South Korea, activists, professors, and civic groups have united to lambast Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and his push to dump radioactively contaminated water from Fukushima into the ocean referring to it as nuclear terrorism against humanity and a criminal act. In India, the Tarpur Atomic Power Station experienced a blast in a chimney built to release off-gases. This caused Unit 1 of the Tarapur Atomic Power Station to be shut down, and the Atomic Energy Regulation Board of India immediately ordered the shutdown of Unit 2 as well. The TAPS, as it is referred to, is India's oldest atomic power station, built in 1969 with cooperation from the United States 51 years ago. In France, Greenpeace activists broke into the aging Tricastin nuclear plant on February 14 to demand its closure a day ahead of the planned shutdown of the country's oldest nuclear reactor at Fessenheim near the German border. The approximately 50 Greenpeace activists broke in armed with jackhammers made from foam for a mock dismantling of the plant. 18 activists were arrested. Greenpeace spokeswoman Cecile Guénaud said, We are protesting and drawing attention to an aging nuclear power plant that is dangerous and should be shut down. She pointed out that Tricastin had reached its 40-year lifespan and, quote, beyond 40 years, the consequences of aging power plants are unpredictable. Note that in the U.S., every nuclear reactor that has reached its 40-year limit has applied for and received a 20-year operating extension to 60 years. And in one instance, at Turkey Point in Florida, the NRC has granted an additional 20-year extension for operation, bringing it to 80 years twice what it was designed to be able to withstand. 
The Fukushima food fight continues internationally, with Japan unfortunately making a lot of progress. Singapore has lifted its nine-year ban on food products from Fukushima, extending to all products from peaches to sake to fish. And Indonesia has eased its import limits on processed food from Japan. It will now accept processed foods from 40 Japanese prefectures, including Fukushima, without radiation inspection certificates. However, these certificates are still required for processed foods from seven Japanese prefectures, and radiation inspection certificates are necessary for meat and vegetables from all Japanese prefectures. This is due to ongoing concerns over the effects of radiation from the triple meltdown at TEPCO's Fukushima power plant. And in South Australia, a farming property has been announced to become a nuclear waste dump, according to the federal government. But opponents of the facility are making a last-ditch attempt to stop it, saying the selection process has been arbitrary, completely lacking in clarity, extremely divisive, and is opposed by environmental and indigenous groups. Absolutely typical. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, it never ends. Nuclear's encroachment on the world, that is. The stories keep coming, thick and fast, of how the planet, its people, and the environment are being compromised and propagandized in an ever-expanding game of My nuke's bigger than your nuke, and I have more of them. That's why, every week, Nuclear Hot Seat does its best to cover the issues, events, policies, people, and, yes, numbnutsical anecdotes about nuclear issues around the world, and to do so in such a way that you don't have to have pre-existing expertise in order to understand. We gear the show for people who know nothing, who are wanting to know something, and people who know something who would like to know a little bit more. In order to keep doing that, we need your help. Nuclear Hot Seat is completely dependent upon donations to meet our monthly expenses and keep going as the longest-running program in the world focused exclusively on nuclear issues. So please... Won't you do your part and help us keep moving ahead? That's right. I'm asking for a donation. We make it easy for you to contribute to the cause. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to send a donation of any size. And if you would like to set up a monthly $5 donation, and let's face it, that's just the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S., just click on the big green Donate button at NuclearHotSeat.com. Please, do what you can now, and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. Terrifically good news arrived on January 31st when in Canada, a vote by the First Nations Saugeen Ojibwe Nation ended once and for all the prospect of Ontario power generation digging a nuclear waste dump less than one mile from the shores of Lake Huron. To learn the details behind this vote and what it meant to Canada's nuclear waste future, we spoke with Dr. Gordon Edwards. He is co-founder and president of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, or CCNR, and he's also been a frequent guest on this show. 
Please note that Nuclear Hot Seat did reach out to Sogin Ojibwe Nation for a representative to speak to these issues, but we did not receive a reply. Dr. Gordon Edwards, always great to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Nice to be here, Libby. There has been a recent very important development in Canada regarding the storage of nuclear waste. First, I want you to give people a picture of what had been proposed as a deep geologic repository, a storage site, for radioactive nuclear waste in Canada, in Ontario specifically. Right near Lake Huron, there is a mass nuclear complex with eight nuclear reactors operating and one permanently shut down called the Bruce Nuclear Complex. There is also a waste management facility full of radioactive waste of all kinds, not only from those nine reactors, but also from the other 10 reactors in other parts of Ontario that have been shipped there. So there's a lot of radioactive waste right on site, and it's right beside Lake Huron. Now, back in 2010, the suggestion was made that this waste could be put deep underground into a deep geological repository, not the high-level waste, not the irradiated nuclear fuel, but all of the other waste, every other kind of of radioactive waste, which includes large 100-ton steam generators. It includes equipment from radioactive nuclear cores, the cores of nuclear reactors. It includes, for example, thousands of highly radioactive tubes that have been withdrawn from the cores of nuclear reactors in Canada. And all of this equipment and all of this waste and all of these uh, filters and so on, which have been accumulating radioactivity over many decades, would all be put deep underground into deep underground chambers less than a mile from Lake Huron, but below the level of the lake, in limestone formations which have not been disturbed, as far as geologists can tell, for the last 450 million years. And for that reason, the proponents feel that it's uh, perfectly acceptable and, in fact, a good idea to put all this radioactive waste deep underground where it will be less susceptible to the weather and to various other factors that could disseminate the waste into the environment. The danger, however, is that people realize that when you put it underground, it's going to be permanent. They're never going to get it back up again. And so the opposition to it was mainly due to the idea of they are now saying that instead of looking after this waste temporarily, we're going to bury it and abandon it there. And consequently, opposition began to grow. That's the project that was proposed, and that's the nature of the opposition that began to grow. The main concern that people had was that if and when the repository fails, that the Great Lakes will be contaminated with this material and that provides drinking water for 40 million people, and anything that threatens the Great Lakes is, of course, unacceptable to people who really care about the Great Lakes Basin. What was the pushback against this, and who was doing it? Where was it coming from? Originally, most people thought that this was a project that would get very prompt approval because the community surrounding this area are very pro-nuclear because they have a lot of jobs at the Bruce Nuclear Power Plant. They regard the uh, nuclear industry as a powerhouse, an economic powerhouse for the area. And they like the idea of acting responsibly, but also furthering the interests of the nuclear industry. And so they were tended to be very favorably disposed to this idea. 
the pushback came from other neighboring communities and neighboring regions and really from the whole Great Lakes uh, watershed area eventually because people thought we must protect the Great Lakes. And the idea of entrusting to an engineered facility that it was going to be abandoned and trusting radioactive waste that remained dangerous for over 100,000 years, when the Great Lakes themselves are only 10,000 years old, struck people as being the height of arrogance and the height of stupidity. And so opposition came very strong and very quickly from various quarters. Over 200 cities and municipalities passed resolutions, both on the Canadian side of the border and the American side of the border. There were technical and geological difficulties raised, there were legal and ethical difficulties raised, and the hearings that were originally planned for six months stretched out to more than three years. It was three years and two months before the panel that was conducting these public hearings finally made a recommendation to the federal government to go ahead with the project. But the federal government, instead of rubber stamping it, they started asking a series of their own questions, which led to further delays. And this was fueled by a great deal of political unrest political objections that were being sent to the Prime Minister of Canada, to the panel, appearing in the newspapers, on the radio, in the public press, some pretty powerful forces, including a congressional body and senators and other political representatives from Michigan, as well as communities, as I mentioned, around the Great Lakes. So all of this got pushed back largely until 2020, which is where we're at now. Why and how did it fall to the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation to give or deny the final approval? Well, this goes back to the history of colonization in North America. <laughs> because, of course, we illegal immigrants came to North America and pushed the Indians and the Native people off their land. But in Canada, we didn't have Indian wars like we did in the States, but we did have treaties that were signed. And these treaties which were signed and then, unfortunately, were largely neglected. But those treaties guaranteed certain rights to these native bands and uh, indigenous tribes. And when the Bruce Nuclear Complex was built, it was done with no consideration for the fact that it was being built on native land. It was being built on land that was not surrendered. It's called unceded territory, unceded territory of the Sogin Ojibwe Nation. And that was a violation of their treaty rights. It was a violation of their legal rights. And eventually, these cases went to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that, in fact, these treaties are legally binding, and they must be followed. They must be enforceable. So the Sogin Ojibwe Nation, which has been transgressed against by the nuclear industry in building this facility in the first place, now has to get their approval in order to go ahead with any project of a brand new type, such as this deep geological repository. The OPG, which is the Ontario Power Generation, a crown corporation, that means a publicly owned corporation, wholly owned by the government of Ontario. Ontario Power Generation promised that if the Sogin Ojibwe Nation did not want it, it would not be done. So if they voted against it, it wouldn't happen. Then, of course, they had several years in which to woo the Sogin Ojibwe Nation. They gave them quite a bit of money, and they also entered into some cooperative agreements, which they both parties signed, to share profits in, in some joint ventures, including the production of radioisotopes. 
And so Ontario Power Generation was hopeful that they could persuade the Sogan Ojibwe Nation to go along with this common-sense proposal from their point of view. Ontario Power Generation offered the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation $150 million to allow this radioactive waste dump to be built on this land. And this was before it was going in for a vote. Yes, that's correct. Yes, it was known by the people who voted, which was just recently that this vote took place. In fact, it was January 31st that the vote took place. And they were well aware of the fact that the Sogin Ojibwe Nation would get $150 million in compensation for the use of their land for this particular project. Nobody knew what the results of that vote would be. I think there were lots of people who were apprehensive because it was even the Sogin Ojibwe Nation really did not know how the vote was going to go. And yet, when the vote came out, out of 1,232 total votes, just 170, 170 people voted yes, 1,058 voted no, and there were four spoiled ballots. They turned it down flat and resoundingly. How was this received, and what has been said by the Sogin Ojibwe Nation in the wake of this as their reasoning behind turning it down? The Sogin Ojibwe Nation has been pretty close they have not been interacting with other bodies, and other bodies, such as my organization, is called the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. Other First Nations, I've interacted with the leaders of uh, the Grand Chief of the Anishinaabeg Nation and uh, many other chiefs. They've all basically held back and not put pressure on the Sogan Ojibwe Nation. They said, look, this is their concern. It's for them to figure it out. Let's not bother them. Let's set them weigh the pros and cons and make their own decision. So even the Sogin Ojibwe Nation leadership, the San leadership, was not sure how the vote was going to come out. But by comments that were made subsequently, there were a couple of points that seemed to be very, very clear. Number one was the Great Lakes. The water is really sacred to First Nations people. They really regard the water as the lifeblood of Mother Earth. And anything that contaminates the water, anything that pollutes the water, really pollutes everything in nature because all living things need water. And there are many countless water ceremonies that First Nations people, prayers and ceremonial prayers that First Nations people engage in with regard to the water. So the sacredness of the water, I think, is one of the primary reasons why they voted against it. And the second thing is the transience of money they know that money is going to disappear and the land is not. And they really feel, again, very strongly associated, identified with the land. Here in Quebec, when the First Nations, the Cree Nation of northern Quebec, voted and acted, really, a moratorium on uranium mining in their territory, the Grand Chief of the Cree at that time said, we do not live on the land, we do not own the land, we are the land. And I think this is one of the principles that the First Nations people have been very firm on. And it's a cultural value which has been transmitted faithfully from generation to generation for many thousands of years, that the land, nothing can be more sacred than the land. And the permanence of the land and the impermanence of money, I think, was a major consideration as well. You recently returned from a gathering of First Nations people what was the discussion there regarding the waste dump and the vote that took place or any other nuclear issues? This group has existed for several years. 
it represents an alliance between most of the uh, First Nations in Ontario. The Anishinaabeg Nation is an umbrella organization that represents 40 different First Nations communities in northern Ontario and eastern Ontario and southwestern Ontario. The Iroquois Caucus is another group of First Nations people that occupies lands mostly along the St. Lawrence River and the shores of the Great Lakes. And these two groups, the Anishinaabeg Nation and the Iroquois Caucus, formed an alliance about three years ago. And I have been invited to be part of their task force on radioactive waste because they're very concerned for the very same reasons that we've just been talking about, the sacredness of the water, the identification with the land, the permanence of the land. They're very concerned about the move that is happening right now in society to want to permanently abandon these radioactive wastes which have been created. This is a new thing. Never until now in the whole history of North America, never has official permission been given to actually abandon radioactive waste that will outlive human civilization as we now know it. I mean, if we look at the lifespan of human civilization, it's only tens of thousands of years old, and these wastes are going to last far longer than that. So these First Nations people are really trying to come to grips with how to prevent a terrible mistake from being made in terms of burying these wastes in an improper way by which they will eventually leak into the environment, poison the food chain, poison the water, and really uh, undermine the functioning of Mother Earth. And that's what the primary focus of this group is. Now, with regard to the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation, they are not represented directly on this group. They have chosen not to be representative on this group, I think because they realize that they have to make an independent stand of their own. But they're not at odds with the group. I mean, they're all part of the same tapestry. And this tapestry is based on those principles. It seems that First Nations people and here in the United States, the Native Americans and their lands are targeted by the nuclear industry, be it for uranium mining or waste, meaning the further and forever contamination of the lands. What insights can you give us into that impulse to contaminate the lands of Native people? I think it's really based on many factors. First of all, the nuclear industry is founded on a couple of lies. The first lie, which was originally used, is that nuclear power is completely clean. It's an essentially clean industry. And as a result of that, for the first 30 years of the nuclear enterprise, from 1945 to 1975, nobody knew about nuclear waste. The people who built these reactors and authorized billions of dollars to be spent on them never realized, were never told, were never informed that there was a problem with nuclear waste. This was a lie. When the bubble burst on that lie in the mid-1970s, then there were a series of documents from U.S. authorities, from Canadian authorities, from U.K. authorities, from New Zealand authorities, all over the world. There were a whole bunch of 1970s-era documents saying that the nuclear industry has to come to an end. There has to be a moratorium on any more nuclear reactors unless they can solve this problem of radioactive waste. And it should be solved as quickly as possible, hopefully by 1985 or by 1990. <laughs> so the industry at that time said, oh, yes, well, it's true we have nuclear waste, but we know exactly what to do with it. We have a solution, and the solution is to bury it in an undisturbed geological formation. 
we know that these formations have existed for a long, long time without being disturbed. So if we put it there, it'll be perfectly safe. The problem with that is that nobody knows exactly how to do that because you can't disturb a geological formation and then claim it's undisturbed. You create the disturbance yourself. And when you put the waste underground in the rock, it's not inert, it's active. It generates heat, it generates chemical reactions, it can produce gases, it can produce pressures, which can lead to release of the radioactive materials through the fractures in the rock or through various underground migration of water, whatever. So these things have come home to roost. And when it comes to actually carrying out these plans, the industry is forced to look to communities which do not have the power to really mount a strong offense. The best way to do that is to go to First Nations lands, uh, indigenous lands, where they are hoping that they do not have the resources to fight them as strongly as other communities, white communities might have. And I believe that part of the uh, motivation to use First Nations communities, First Nations land, is a combination of, number one, being able to tell the story in a one-sided way to the First Nations people so that they will see that this is a good idea, that we're protecting Mother Earth by putting this stuff underground, and that therefore wouldn't you want to help us protect Mother Earth by putting grandfather uranium to rest. They've even used that phrase sometimes. Let us lay grandfather uranium to rest. We took him out of the ground originally. Now we want to return him to the ground from which he came. But of course, it's not the same stuff that's going into the ground that came out of the ground. It's millions of times more radioactive. You've got hundreds of radioactive materials which are human-made that were never there before. The other thing is, and this is an important point, I think, is that they are hoping that the degree of legal authority that First Nations do possess may allow them to resist any kind of uh, legal opposition from outside. In other words, if white society tries to stop the implantation of these wastes on native land, the native land can say, wait a minute, this is our land. We'll decide what happens on our land. You can't interfere with us. So if they can get the First Nations people on board, then they can have a freer way of resisting pressures from outside the indigenous community. This is only speculation on my part, but I think it might be almost instinctive on the part of the nuclear industry. Certainly here in Canada, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, which is an organization owned and operated by the waste producers, is mandated by the government of Canada that they must consult with First Nations and indigenous people of all kinds, and that includes not only the so-called status Indians that have treaties, but the Inuit up in the Arctic regions, the Métis, who are uh, mostly urban-based communities, and all the First Nations communities, which includes more than just those that are honored with a treaty. So all I can say is that the whole of society has to come to grips with the fact that going forward, we have to be very careful that the industry does not follow only its own interests, because right now, the first interest of the industry is to protect itself. They think that by bearing this waste, they can walk away from it, and therefore they can cut their liabilities. So cutting their liability is a main initiative from their point of view. The other thing is they want to be able to keep on building nuclear reactors and keep on producing this radioactive waste. They won't be able to do that unless they can convince society that they have found what is acceptable to them as a solution 
to the nuclear waste problem? With no nuclear waste dump going forward on the shores of Lake Huron, phew, on that one, what is the next step for Canada and Bruce Power to deal with its radioactive nuclear waste? Well, that's a good point. First of all, OPG has immediately responded to the SON vote, the vote of the Saugeen Ojibwe, saying that, yes, this project is now dead. We are not going to go ahead with this project. We will now immediately begin looking for another site. So they're now going to do what they were previously forced to do by the federal government, is to answer the question, why have you not looked at other sites? Now they're forced to look at other sites, and they're going to be searching for another place to put this waste. However, the same question arises in that regard. Do we really have the knowledge necessary to be able to abandon this stuff? Should we not be looking after it indefinitely, at least for the next 100 or 200 years, until we really are sure that we know what we're doing? Right now, unfortunately, there's a kind of a conflict of motives. You might say there's a, a hidden agenda. The hidden agenda is to save the industry rather than to save the planet. But there's also another joker in the deck, and that joker in the deck is that even though this particular DGR project has now been abandoned, there's another DGR project just a little distance away. In fact, this one is only 16 miles from Lake Huron. It's also on Sogin Ojibwe land, and it's a DGR project proposed for the high-level waste, for all the irradiated nuclear fuel, which is millions of times more radioactive. So the danger has not gone away. It's simply shifted. In the case of the low and intermediate level waste, it's shifted to other sites. In the case of the high-level waste, it's still being planned to be put right there, right there within 16 miles of Lake Huron, and right beside a river called the Teeswater River, which is, you know, it's incredible when you think about the sites that are chosen for these waste repositories, because one thing that has been agreed upon by everybody who's looked at radioactive waste is that circulating water is the worst thing to have when you have radioactive waste, because water is the main way by which these radioactive materials can be transmitted to the environment of living things. With that second site, has that already been approved, or is that in the approval process and can still be pushed back against and canceled? Oh, it can still be pushed back against and canceled. As a matter of fact, there's a two-part documentary on the high-level radioactive waste dump, DGR proposed, that was just produced last month. There are two half-hour programs put out by the Aboriginal People's Television Network, APTN Television, and they're quite good, and they give your listeners a way to see where these sites are, where they're located, and to hear the voices of some of the people who are speaking on both sides, either for the project or against the project. What else would you like to share with us at this time to further enrich our understanding? I think that people have got to snap out of it and realize that, look, we were lied to about the nuclear waste in the first place. Now that we know the nuclear waste is there, now that we know that it is such a tricky problem and that we don't really have a handle on how to store things safely for a million years, shouldn't we just stop producing it? And I think that this is the main point that has been overlooked in all this. The industry tries to go through the motions to convince people that, yes, we do have a solution. It's only a question of finding out where to put it, but we know exactly what to do. All we have to do is bury it. 
I think people have got to realize that that is not really sufficient answer, that we should stop producing this waste. If I can just tell a short little story, here in Quebec we had a terrible fire and a warehouse involving PCBs. It was at a place called Saint-Basile-le-Grand, and there were tons of PCBs stored in this warehouse. The fire released a tremendous amount of this toxic material into the atmosphere and thick black smoke and contaminated a lot of firefighters and first responders. As a result of that fire, the government of Quebec decided to completely eliminate PCBs get rid of it completely, do not have it anywhere in the province, and take the existing stocks of PCBs and have them safely destroyed. Well, we should apply that same philosophy to nuclear waste. We should say, we've got to stop producing this stuff. All we're doing is just poisoning the earth and adding to the problems. And remember that even when people say that nuclear power might be a transitional technology towards a renewable society, that doesn't hold up. It really doesn't hold up because nuclear power is going to continue to cost money long after the last nuclear reactor shut down. We're going to be paying money. Our grandchildren's grandchildren are going to be paying for the waste that is left over. We can't afford to have technologies of that nature. Gordon, your thoroughness of your understanding and the ease with which you communicate it are always welcome to the listeners. Keep us informed about anything else that's happening up in Canada. We'll be happy to carry it on the show. And for now, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. As is so often the case with these interviews, once we were done with the formal questioning, we kept chatting. And Dr. Edwards came up with something that was so important, I decided to include it so that you can have the benefit of what he had to say. How important was it that people pushed back as thoroughly as they did against this proposed waste dump? The opposition was massive and was decisive, I believe. Uh, Even though Saugeen Ojibwe Nation had the final say, I believe that the spotlight that was cast on this project internationally was fundamentally important in terms of the whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. So that when the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation made their vote, It was not just a local event, it was an international event. When this project was first proposed, everybody thought it was going to be a slam dunk, including the people who were opposed to it. They said, wow, (laughs) this is going to go through, it's going to be approved very quickly, and we're not going to be able to stop it. But, in fact, the hearings dragged out from six months to over three years, and then even after the hearings gave a green light, at all points along the way, you could have given up hope. You could have said, well, it looks like we're losing the battle. It looks like we're not going to win this. But even when the green light was given and the panel recommended to the government of Canada to approve this project, the government of Canada, which was legally obliged to give a decision in 90 days, refused to do so. Instead, ask more questions of the proponent. Why haven't you looked at additional sites? That caused another six-month delay. Why haven't you looked at the cumulative impact of this particular project along with other projects? That caused another six-month delay. And so one thing led to another. When the Americans started getting involved and the American lawmakers sent letters to the Prime Minister of Canada, it started making big splashes in the Detroit press and in Michigan generally. That added fuel to the fire, and uh, the Canadian government was very wary of offending our American neighbors because, in fact, we ourselves had objected to an American high-level waste dump uh, way back in the 80s 
And we managed to stop that waste dump in Vermont. And the reason why was because the government of Canada sent a note to the White House saying we would not be pleased to have a radioactive waste dump right on the borders of Canada, especially where the water flows into Canada. Well, the same argument could be applied to Lake Huron. I mean, who's right across the water from this particular site? Michigan. And who drinks the water? Everybody. So the same argument could be turned around and say the Americans surely should have a say in whether nuclear waste is going to be left right on the shores of their Great Lakes, not just our Great Lakes. So I think it's very important never to say that it's over when it's not over. As long as there is something happening, it's very important to actually increase the pressure because as the pressure grows, the importance becomes more paramount and much greater attention is paid to the details. And as a result, you have a chance to stop a project which at one time seemed unstoppable. Excellent, important advice from Dr. Gordon Edwards. He is co-founder and president of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. We will have links up to the two documentaries that aired on the Aboriginal People's Television Network on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 453. And again, if a representative from the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation would like to speak to these issues on Nuclear Hot Seat, we would welcome the opportunity to present your views. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out. It's films that are in the news this week for activists. The Cascadia Uranium Film Arts Festival, Living in a Nuclear Landscape, is the first time out for this particular festival. It will be held in Portland, Oregon on Friday, April 3rd through Sunday, April 5th at the Alberta Alley. Films will include The Return of Navajo Boy, Hibaksha at the End of the World, Hibaksha meaning those who survived the nuclear bomb attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and Little Voices from Fukushima. Film directors will be there, and of special note will be Norma Field, who is Professor Emeritus from the University of Chicago and a steady, ongoing presence in the fight for truth about Fukushima. Tricia Pritikin, a Hanford site downwinder and author of the Hanford Plaintiffs, Voices from the Fight for Atomic Justice. Filmmaker Hitomi Kamanaka will be there, commenting on his two films, and will be joined by Chisao Hata, performing artist, and Yukio Kawano, who has an art installation. All of this dealing with nuclear issues. Please go for the information, for the speakers, but not only that, to learn who in the Oregon community, in the Portland area, who's also interested in these issues, working on these issues, and let's build community around this festival. We'll have a link to it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 453. And the other good film news is about Atomic Homefront. This is the film that chronicled the struggle of the mothers in North St. Louis against radioactive contamination left over from the Manhattan Project from 1942 that was poisoning Coldwater Creek, is buried in the Bridgeton landfill, and how these women, none of them schooled in politics or political action, 
took the bull by the horns and forced this country to do something about that waste. It's an important, powerful, and deeply important film. Atomic Homefront, now available in its entirety, for free, on YouTube. Here's today's final thought. As you heard during the news section, there is now a lot of talk about whether or not the 2020 Tokyo Olympics will be canceled in light of the coronavirus. What no one seems to be talking about is the Olympic torch relay, scheduled to begin on March 26th in Fukushima Prefecture and stay in that area, in Fukushima, for three full days. It is also slated to run through Futaba. Now, that's the town that hosted the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. It's right there. And that's also where allowable radiation levels set by the Japanese government are four times higher than what humans are allowed to be exposed to in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Now, I have a background in broadcast production, and I know what it takes for television networks and news services to set up remote coverage anywhere. There have to be union members on the ground long before you actually see any footage. Those are the people who set up all the technical aspects. Then there's support staff, front of camera reporters. I would be shocked if NBC, which is covering the Olympics, or at least they've got the contract to do so, I would be shocked if NBC doesn't have people there already doing logistics and setting up the work for the torch relay. As regular listeners to the show have heard, I've been on an unrelenting rip and tear against the torch relay for logical and radiological reasons. And now, enter the coronavirus. It actually has a lot in common with nuclear radiation. Another invisible threat to human life and health. A stealth attack on our immune systems. Maybe it kills you outright and fast. Maybe it takes longer. We don't yet know the long-term implications. But at least the world is paying attention, looking to Tokyo and the Olympics and thinking, hmm, maybe that's not such a good idea. It would be ironic if instead of Fukushima and the nuclear radiation dangers and awareness of it, it's a virus and the threat of pandemic that shuts down first the torch relay. Could we put that out of its misery now, please? And then the Olympics themselves. Again, it's a little off topic, but I'll take it because the important thing is to not allow the Japanese propaganda to normalize the world's perception that Fukushima is suddenly A-OK and so that the evacuees are forced back to live in that radioactive zone in constant, unrelenting contact with the radioactivity. As for Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, whose lies that Fukushima was, quote, under control, end quote, put him and his country in this position by convincing the International Olympic Committee to give the Olympics to Japan. We haven't seen or heard from you lately. Panic attacks getting to you? Well, I can only say, suck it up, princess, and fall on your sword. It was your lies that got the country into this mess. Karma, Abe baby, karma writ large by a microscopic virus on behalf of the even more microscopic radioactive particles that you want your people to marinate in. Now, 
Let's see how long Abe's denial system is allowed to last before he has to bite the bullet, fall on the sword, and declare it over. Anything less is a crime against humanity, to say nothing of the athletes of the Olympics and the Paralympics. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclearinternational.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, presstv.com, theguardian.com, penlive.com, timesfreepress.com, Washington Post, clemson.edu, outrider.org, betting-offers.com, miamiherald.com, mainichi.jp.english, Bangkok Post, hani.co.kr, cbc.ca, japantimes.co.jp, energy.economictimes.com, Reuters, france24.com, straighttimes.com, and activists around the world who keep me informed as to what the cutting edge of the nuclear situation looks like from their perspective. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, so you can subscribe there. Or if you want to have a more elegant and a bit more thorough delivery of Nuclear Hot Seat, go to the website, scroll down a little bit, and look for the big yellow box. Put in your first name and email address, and we will send you an email every week that has not only the link to that week's show, but also a short rundown of what the information is that is included. If you haven't already done so, go to the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. You can like it. You can share it. You can respond to a post. And make sure that you repost the show in any of the groups that you are involved with because the only way this information gets out is with your help. If you know of a nonprofit or community broadcast station that would like to carry Nuclear Hot Seat or you think they should carry it, Send an email to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com and we will get on it. Also, that's where you go if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview. And a reminder that if you would like to support Nuclear Hot Seat, you can visit our website and just look for that big red donate button to send a donation of any size. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby, Halevi, and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. Just ask. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that you cannot protect yourself against nuclear dangers if you don't know what they are. So keep listening. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.